Now, if you're new to Christianity, I want to give you a quick warning. The video we watched earlier today is providential, right? We go through the New City Catechism. It lines up perfectly with what we're going to be talking about today in the sermon. But I want to warn you that in the sermon today, you're coming in halfway into a story. So the Christian walk starts when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We believe that he died to save us from our sins. And as a gift, he justifies us. It moves into a period of sanctification, whereby we're putting to death sin and moving towards godliness. And then it ends with glorification when we, with all people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, dwell with God forever for all eternity in heaven. So it's beginning, middle, end, and today we're in the middle. We're in that section on sanctification. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about sanctification, has a lot to say about this process. And um, I'm a metaphor person. I love metaphors. And so I like the fact that when Paul talks about sanctification, he usually gives us a metaphor, and it's usually something about training, usually something about running, marathon, run with endurance, the race set before you. Now, my kids will tell you this. I'm not a runner. I will chase a soccer ball. I will chase a hockey puck. But we don't have lions in East Lansing, so I see no reason to develop the ability to run. Just saying, it's not something I do. But at a period in my life, I uh, engaged in the martial art of Taekwondo. And so for me, when I think about training, I think back to the time that I was in the dojo learning a martial art. And so I'm going to use that as kind of the metaphor um, for us this morning. So the way that this worked for me was I would show up at the dojo, which was really a dance studio that we used as a dojo. The master, the Taekwondo master, was up near the front. Myself, as a little white belt, was down in the back. And I say little, I was in grad school at the time. I was in the back. (laughs) And the master would show us a move, and we would copy. He'd show us another move, we'd copy again. And we would do that over and over. And at some point, we were expected to sit there and practice our moves, and the master would walk around and see how we were doing, because inevitably, our form was bad. And the master would walk around, and he would correct our form. Sometimes our form was bad because we didn't know what we were doing, and so there was encouragement. Other times, we were tired or had gotten lazy, and so we're just kind of throwing punches, and he would rebuke as he saw fit. One of the interesting pieces was that the room was arranged in order of rank. So low rank on one side, high rank on the other side, and you're staring looking forward. So that means that the lower ranks, who really don't really know what they're doing, can look at a whole sea of people who have practiced this, who have gotten good at it, and they can follow their example. Now sometimes you would see the master up front, and you'd follow his example. Other times, he was walking around, so you'd look at the black belts, because they know what they're doing. Sometimes, it was all I could do to keep moving. I'd just pay attention to the person in front of me, who was just a little bit ahead of me, and I would try to copy their movement. What I liked about this was that it was done in community. One of the things that I don't like about running is usually it's me running. I've not run in a group of people, so maybe I'd enjoy it more. But this was done in community. There was no condescension. We never said, oh, that person stinks. We knew that some people had no balance. We knew that some people just really needed to work on their flexibility. But we were all together, all working for one purpose, all trying to get better. 
And so there was this sense where when someone was struggling, other people would come along and help them. Now, because it was done in community, there was also a shared responsibility. I said that the higher ranks were up at the front, lower ranks at the back, which meant that as I got higher and higher in my rank, I suddenly realized there's a pile of people behind me looking at me doing this. Oh boy, I better get the punch right. Because if I start messing it up, the people behind me are going to mess it up. So my form became sharper because I was aware that I was being watched. In the back, I could slip out and get a drink when I was tired and hope that nobody would notice. In the middle, I had to push through a little bit more. I had to push harder, and it was partially because of the responsibility that I was setting an example for others. Now, I want to pause and say, as with any metaphor, you can take this way too far or go in other ways, but I like this metaphor, and I like it because of the communal aspect of the training. In our passage today in Timothy, we're talking about training, and specifically training in righteousness. And there's many types of sermons that we could give, but I want to point out that in this type of sermon, I'm not giving the sermon because I'm an expert in this. As a matter of fact, this is an area that I struggle in. And so I want to encourage you and encourage me in an area of weakness, and so I hope that this time is encouraging to you. As Gail read this morning, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verses 6 to 16. Ooh, wow, that's a good small font. That's the whole passage, but you all have pew Bibles, so you don't need to worry about this. It's up there. We'll get back to it. Um, But what I want to do is I want to look at some of the action words in this passage. So let's highlight them. So what do we have for action words? We have words like servant, trained, train yourself, we toil, we strive, set an example, devote yourself, immerse yourself, practice, keep watch, persist, don't neglect. Who's doing the action in this passage? Well, Paul is telling Timothy, you do these things. You train, you toil, you strive, You devote yourself. Paul is telling Timothy to be so effective in these things that he's actually going to be an example to others. Notice that he says that you are to set an example, to set the believers an example. Also notice that it's supposed to be so effective that all may see Timothy's progress. This is supposed to be observable. He is to set an example of faith, and impurity. An example, much like the higher ranks who had achieved some level of mastery in the dojo, could then train others. Now, we should be very clear, and we were in the video this morning. There are many sermons that could be given on the role of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. This isn't one of them. It's intentionally not one of them. This is a sermon on your role in conjunction with the Holy Spirit on the process of sanctification. And when I say your, I don't mean you individually, although that's a piece of it. I mean you collectively, us as Red Cedar, in our role in helping each other and moving through this process of sanctification. And so rather than waiting until the end, I want to give you my goal for this morning. I want you to leave here encouraged. I want you to leave here encouraged, not comfortable, 
but encouraged. Encouraged by the fact that you and I have work to do, a plan to do it, and each other to help us through that process. So I want to encourage you to strive, to toil, to work hard, and to make a firm plan for your growth. To do this, we should lay a foundation. So, what are the motivating factors? And then we'll dig specific into specifics, talk a little bit about nuts and bolts, because inevitably the, the thing that I don't like about this topic is when, we, is, is when I read books and they sketch out the, the treaty and then I never know what to go from there. So I'm going to try to be as specific as I can. Now, Timothy has already laid out some of our motivation. That's not the right slide. Timothy has already laid, or Paul has already laid out some of our motivation in the book of 1 Timothy. He gave us those action words. And when he talks about our motivation, he talks a bit about why we do these things, right? We are to be trained, and it says that bodily training has some value, but godliness has value in every way. It holds promise for the present life, but also for the life to come. Well, that's a fascinating line. That's a whole sermon in its, of itself. Paul's not the only one, however, that has these action words. John, in 1 John, reminds everyone that those who hope in Christ purifies themselves even as Christ is pure. And the passage that Rick read from last week, 2 Peter, talks about the idea where, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. We could discuss more, but my goal is to emphasize that Scripture is very clear that your effort plays a role in the process of sanctification. Now, as an American church, we tend to not like discussing this role as often. And there's a lot of reasons why, and I want to hit some of those because it's worth thinking through them because they're good reasons. Um, one reason is that we worry about legalism. Now, if you're not familiar with legalism, legalism is where our pursuit of God becomes replaced by our pursuit of righteousness. That's a bad replacement. Another worry that we have is that it could lead to confusion. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought we were saved by faith, not works. Why are we talking about our effort now? That's justification, we're talking about sanctification. Now, also remember the dojo example. Everything was cooperative. How do we know that we won't turn this into a perhaps competitive thing rather than a cooperative thing? Other people might ask a question like, you know, I'm waiting for God to work on my heart. How do I know I'm not getting ahead of him? Or, you know what, this is really hard. I'm kind of overwhelmed with life. How can I do this? Or, or maybe... Some of us worry that if we do try and fail, what does that mean? And they're all real concerns, and there's good answers to all of them. I'm happy to discuss them with you after the sermon. But these concerns can sometimes lead us to a passive approach to our sanctification, where we leave the heavy lifting and planning aspect to God. Now, we like to quote old dead guys in this church, so I'm going to apologize this one's living. Um, <laughs> Wayne Grudem in 1994 wrote a book called Systematic Theology. It's a very thick book. In his section on sanctification, he says the following. 
Unfortunately today, this passive role in sanctification, this idea that yielding to God and trusting him to work in us, to will and to work for his good pleasure, is sometimes so strongly emphasized that it's the only thing that people are told about the path of sanctification. Sometimes the popular phrase, let go and let God, is given as a summary of how to live the Christian life. But this is a tragic distortion of the doctrine of sanctification. It speaks of only one half of the part we must play, and by itself will lead Christians to become lazy and neglect the active role in Scripture, active role that Scripture commands that they play in their own sanctification. Again, he's writing this back in 1994 to the American church. Another way of putting this um, in, in more of a, a reflective way uh, is Jeff, Jerry Bridges, Jeff Bridges, different person, Jeff Bridges, in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, which, by the way, was written 20 years before Grudem, 1973, where he's reflecting on what it means to participate in sanctification. He's he's thinking about himself. He says, during a certain period of my Christian life, I thought any effort on my part to live a holy life was of the flesh, and that the flesh profits nothing. I thought God would not bless any effort on my part to live the Christian life, just like he would not bless any effort on my part to become a Christian by good works. How foolish I was. I misconstrued dependence on the Holy Spirit to mean that I was to make no effort, that I had no responsibility, that I mistakenly thought that if I turned it all over to the Lord, he would make my choices for me and would choose obedience over disobedience. I like this quote because I've been there. All I needed was to look to God for holiness, but that's not God's way. He makes provision for our holiness, but he gives us the responsibility of using those provisions. We see from these the idea that sanctification has these two parts. We have the work of the Holy Spirit. That's very clear in Scripture. We have our working with the Holy Spirit, our effort and our planning on this. Also very clear in Scripture. And it's worth pointing out that in addition to the Christian concerns, there's some secular kind of cultural things that feed into this, right? What does the culture tell us? It says, be who you want to be. I don't need to change. It says, I was born this way, therefore it's right for me. I don't need to change. It says, you know, it's okay to do these things. I'm not hurting anyone else. And if we're not careful, if we don't have a good doctrine of sanctification, it's very easy for those cultural motifs to seep into how we practice the Christian life, and we will no longer practice dying to ourselves and conforming to the image of Christ. All right, so we've discussed the why, or the why not. But we also have to discuss the why. And this is where I want to talk about the encouraging piece. Why is it that we should participate in our sanctification? Why do this? I mean, let's be honest. At the end, you know, we're justified. That's very clear. We're glorified at the end. Why participate in this middle piece? Because frankly, it can be hard. So let's see what Paul says to Timothy. Oh boy, good tiny font. So I'm looking at the red sections, and um, I'll, I'll read them. So if, you're, uh, if the, the writing is too small, we'll go through it. Verse 8 says, Godliness is of value in this life and the one to come. There's value in pursuing godliness. Verse 12 says, It will benefit other Christians. Consider this. Your effort towards sanctification 
our efforts communally as a church towards sanctification aid each other, and we do this for our mutual benefit. This is a collaboration. It is communal. Verse 11, we're motivated by obedience. We are commanded that we pursue holiness. There's a command to do this. That's just the set of motivations in 1 Timothy 4. There's a whole other set of motivations, all provided for you in a very tiny font. <laughs> Gratitude. It's the correct response to God's saving grace. Love. It's the natural response to loving Jesus. There's a kingdom ambition, which is in 2 Timothy 2.21, where we are increasingly useful to God and his kingdom. There's a, a kingdom ambition ambition or a heavenly ambition where God promises us reward in heaven related to this sanctification process. There's benefits not only to ourselves, not only to Christians, but there's benefits to non-Christians as they see what God is doing in our life and start to ask us questions about who God is. And of course, there's also the, the negative version of this, which is to avoid discipline. Because if I'm not active in processing through sanctification, God is a good God. And he will not let me stay stagnant in my walk. And so he will find ways to help me move forward in my sanctification because he loves me. All right, there could, there's many more of these and we could dwell on any of them. But I want to pause for a second and say, it's okay to not be motivated by any of these. Sometimes actions follow motivations. Sometimes I don't have the motivation within me. Sometimes I don't feel like doing this. And that's the time when it's okay to go through the motions. As a matter of fact, I would argue that that's an important time to go through the motions. Now, it really helps if the motions are part of something you already do. We're in a season of Lent. We're in a, a liturgical season. And one of the best ways to not be shipwrecked in our faith is to practice liturgies. That way, when hard times come along and I don't feel like doing something, I can immerse myself in a pattern that I've already developed. I've planned ahead of time the things that I'm doing so that I'm not trying to build the airplane in the air, so to speak. Um, when I studied Taekwondo, I joined a sparring club. It was really fun. We'd go down to Harvard and kick people. Um, tournaments were where you sparred with another person. It was a two-minute long bout, and whoever scored the most points, as determined by kicks, um, won the match. And two minutes sounds like a short amount of time. I will tell you, it's exhausting. And if I had not spent weeks training ahead of time, for that bout, I would have collapsed well under the minute mark. But because I had spent weeks, I was able to at least stay standing through the match. Now, I'll be honest, by the time it was done, my, my hands dropped, my form was sloppy. But it was the preparation for that that allowed me to make it through. We know as Christians that we are going to face hardships and temptations. But a lot of times, we wait for them to come before we get ready to fight. What does it mean to kind of anticipate those? To think ahead and to plan ahead and to train so that when those come, you can make it through that two-minute period. 
All right. So what does this look like? How do we actually enter into the dojo and learn some sin-crushing skills? Not nunchuck skills, sin-crushing skills. Develop some memory, muscle memory and holiness or strengthen our resolve to fight the good fight. Well, first I want to highlight what Rick said last week. There are two parts to our training in holiness. One part is this idea of putting to death. It's the mortification of the flesh. It's what the author of Hebrews means when he says, let us lay aside every way in the sin which clings so closely. This is the putting off of things that are weights, that are temptations, that are sins. But of course, there's the other side of things, which is training in righteousness, which means that we learn about and imitate the character of God. And so I want to give some practical ways in which this can be done. I'm giving a couple examples, only a couple, because there's a lot of stuff here that we could go through, and it's worth kind of thinking through this. But this is not a one-size-fits-all thing. Just because something is helpful to you in the Christian walk doesn't mean that somebody else has to do it or that it's helpful to them. And just because you see somebody doing something else in the Christian walk doesn't mean, at least in this context, that that's what you have to do, that that's going to move you ahead. There's a piece here where you have to, through the Holy Spirit, recognize proclivities and directions in your own life that need development and focus on those. So, what if the world has too strong of a grip on you and you place too much trust in money? Or maybe you struggle with pride. I know in our culture at the university, many people are anxious. Or One of the big ones, what if I feel like I just don't have enough time in life? Or maybe I struggle with anger. What we learn from Scripture is that there's value in practicing giving these things up. Giving things up. Proactively seeking to practice the art of giving up things that you hold too tightly. Jesus does this with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and Jesus talks through the process of salvation and asks the rich young ruler some questions. And at the end, what does Jesus say? He says, If you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And when the young man heard that, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus was asking the rich young ruler, to practice giving something up because it had become an idol for them, him. So how can we give up trusting in money? Well, we can increase our donations, right? We can practice giving away what we really want to cling to. What if I struggle with pride? Well, it's good that I start proactively thinking about acts of service, not public ones, secret ones, ones that nobody knows about. Now, of course, later on, we we find out that secret acts of service have a way of coming forth, but hidden acts of service. If you're anxious, time to get off social media, time to stop reading the news. This one's for me. Um, I find that if I'm I'm getting too worked up, you know, it's good to take a break from reading the news. Do you feel like you have no time? Fix a time. Set a time. Make an hour Say when it starts, what day it is, maybe it's multiple days, but fix it and don't stray from it. Force yourself to practice that hour of reflection. Do you struggle with anger? Practice listening to people, right? Because anger is very often about what I want and what, what I 
think in a situation. If I'm listening to someone, I have to think about what somebody else needs. It forces me to practice getting away from myself and focusing on someone else. But that's only the mortification side. There's also the meditation side. So for the same five struggles, let's try the, the meditation side. What does it mean to meditate on what's true? Am I putting too much trust in money? Maybe I need to think about what it means to invest in God's kingdom. Am I struggling with pride? Maybe I need to meditate on my standing before God and what it means, my inability to actually earn God's favor. Am I anxious? Well, I can meditate on pieces of scripture where God has provided. Do I feel like I have no time? I can think about what's actually commanded in scripture that I do. That's important. I should do that. And I should think about what has eternal value. I should reprioritize based on an understanding of scripture. Am I struggling with anger? Maybe I practice praying for people who have angered me and not praying vindictive prayers, but praying prayers of God's blessing on them so that I develop a heart for other people. The idea here is not that these are the ways that you are going to go through sanctification. I'm trying to give examples so that we can think about how do we both give up things that we are clinging to too closely, that's kind of the, the external side, the mortification side, but also how do I write my relationship with God so that I'm learning and my focus is on Him. Think of this as training of actions and training of affections. All right, a couple caveats on the whole process. Be practical with this. Make a plan. Don't wait for it to happen. Make a plan. Uh, identify areas in your life that physically or spiritually need work and think carefully about how you can practice removing your dependence on them. Think about time. Is this a brief sprint or is it a marathon? A lot of times, struggling with sin in our life is a marathon. And if we go into it as a brief sprint, think we'll have this handled in a couple of days, we'll be very disappointed. Think about it in terms of seasons. We have a season of Lent to remind us to give up things. And it's good to have those seasons where there's an ebb and flow in these. Number two. Three. Sorry, I'll count. Think about guardrails. If you're susceptible to anger when you're tired, think about sleeping well. When I was in high school, I found myself... Um, I found that secular music that I was listening to was affecting my attitudes. Um, and so I gave it up for roughly a year. Uh, I bought a bunch of Christian rock. This is the mid-90s. That's what you did in the mid-90s. Um, and, you know, it actually made a big difference for me at that time, a bigger difference than I expected. It was for a time. It made a big difference. And it was definitely for me. It was based on what I sensed the Holy Spirit telling me to do, based on seeing what was going on in my life. When Daniel and his friends show up in Babylon, they set guardrails. Before they were tempted, they thought about what they valued, what they knew they were going to be tempted with, and they said, this far and no further. They set those ahead of time. So I want to pause for a second and directly address our youth. Because 
right now, if you're a youth, if you're in high school, typically these guardrails are set by your parents. And at some point, you will be moving out of the home, making your own way in the world, and those guardrails are things that you will have to set based on your understanding of God and what God requires in holiness. Now, I want you to think now about what those guardrails would be in your life rather than waiting until temptation comes or waiting until the world has influenced you and pulled you away slowly. Um, I'm not going to tell you what guardrails to set, but two I find to be very helpful. One is no matter what you do, find a local church, and no matter how busy you are, commit to attending. Or another one that I've found just talking with friends and seeing people is make sure that my friend group has Christians who are dedicated to Christ. These things are not stuff that are hard and fast rules. That's legalism. They're supposed to be things that I choose to help me because I love God and want to pursue holiness. Be patient. Don't expect progress overnight or even over a month. Don't do this alone. The whole church doesn't have to know what you're working on, but somebody in the church should because they should be praying for you. Expect God. Expect God to do unexpected things. Um, we should also ask the question, what happens if you grow weary? Because sometimes fighting the good fight can be tiring. It's a whole different sermon for a whole other day, but I love the ending of James on it, and I'm happy to talk about it later. The one that I do want to talk about is what happens if we fail. And I want to do two things on this direction. Number one, I want to define failure very carefully because we tend to look at the things that we do poorly as failure rather than looking at things that are going well. So as an example, if you've successfully controlled your anger for months and suddenly you lose control, we like to think, or we tend to think, that that's a failure. But think about that. You've successfully, with the aid of the Spirit, controlled your anger for months, praise God for that. Repent of the fall, but praise God that he is working in you to help mortify that peace. If you suddenly see that you're more angry than you ever realized, that's the Holy Spirit showing you ways in your life that you can mortify, things in your life that you can mortify for the praise and honor of God's name. So don't look at those as things where Oh no, I suddenly re I, I have all these things. Look at those as ways that you can subjugate those things to Christ. Sometimes failure is God redirecting our resources. I, as a Taekwondo person, I hate using karate motifs, but karate kid, right? What does Danielson do? Wax on, wax off. And, you know, I get really sick of the fact that the car is continually needing waxing. And sometimes God is working on that muscle memory and the waxing of the car is secondary to what he's actually doing. And I might focus on the failure of the fact that the car is needing this wax still when God is gloriously excited about the fact that I've developed this muscle memory that maybe I don't even notice. 
And finally, sometimes God has bigger plans for you than the sins that you see. Remember, there's an external and an internal. Which one is God after? Both, yes, but God is after your heart. And sometimes failure in the external, what we think of as failure as the external, is actually forcing us to rely on God more, is forcing us to put our faith in God more, and he's working on the heart when I'm working on the exterior, right? And so that's another piece of this. Now, I want to say that when you think about failure, it should be... In this last sense, I want to say, based on our passage in Timothy, it should be rare, and it should be something where it's judged by another Christian rather than by you. Because if you're judging, sometimes we don't really understand our hearts. All right. Remember, our goal is righteousness, but our bigger goal is our heart attitude towards God. All right, I've spent a long time here, um, but I do want to step through one last passage um, on the topic. And as I do, those of you who are serving communion or on the worship team can come forward. This passage is Colossians 2, 18 through 23, although I'm, I'm hopping over a few verses. And it's important that we read through this passage to really understand what I'm talking about here today. Colossians 2, 23, starting in 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. Going on about, in detail about visions. Verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as it were, as you were still, why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These indeed have the appearance of wisdom, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, after what we've just talked about, we do have to handle this verse. And rather than being contradictory to Timothy, this allows us to properly understand the passage in Timothy. Verse 23 is discussing externally applied boundaries towards mortification. That is very different than boundaries Boundaries that that I set set. towards mortification because of my love for Christ. Paul was a Pharisee. If anybody knew about how to set rules and maintain righteousness, it was Paul. Remember in Philippians where he says he was even blameless under the law? But Paul knew that the Pharisees only had the appearance of holiness. They were performing to be seen as righteousness without acting out of love for God. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it very clear that holiness before God is not just external, it's internal. So I want to end with the biggest warning. Pursuing righteousness is commanded in Scripture. But pursuing righteousness can be an idol if I replace God as the ultimate reason for it. Pursuing external righteousness without pursuing internal submission to Christ will lead to idolatry. And if that happens, like Colossians says, I'm engaged in a self-made religion. And there will be no effect. This is the reason 
that one of the last acts of Jesus on the night he was betrayed was to wash the disciples' feet. Why did he do that? He did it to remind them that they aren't to lord over fellow Christians with rules and regulations, but to serve them. They are to seek holiness and help others seek holiness, collaboratively, communally. One of the best measures for your growth in this area, and I'll give you two, love for God and love for your neighbor. The mortification of the flesh should result in an increased love for God and an increased love for the people around you. And that's what prevents it from moving into this legalistic piece. Timothy reminds us that we're supposed to pursue excellence in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. So let me encourage you. We come together to this table to remember the work of Jesus on the cross. A work that is started and a promise that he will complete it. It's in that hope 